Welcome to the latest episode of Take Back Our Schools. I'm Andrew Gutman, and along with my esteemed co-host, Beth Feely, and we talk to people who want to help fix our broken education system. Uh, And today we have one of those people, Aaron Phillips. Aaron is the co-founder and president of the nonprofit organization Power to Parent Union and is spearheading education freedom for Nevada PAC. Under her leadership, Power to Parent formed as the first parent union in Nevada with more than 10,000 members and now has chapters in six states across the United States. In 2021, Erin launched a signature-driven effort to create education freedom accounts to allow parents the freedom to choose the education that best fits their child's needs. She is a regular guest on talk radio and has represented Power to Parent on local and national news. Erin is a mother of five children and can be found often on the baseball field, I guess, watching her kids play baseball. Uh, Erin, thank you so much for coming on Take Back Our Schools. Oh, thanks for having me. So you, like Beth and myself, I think, are one of the many sort of accidental, you know, parent activists in this in this movement. So if you could just start out, you know, tell us your story, how you became, you know, one of one of the activists fighting for education freedom and, and taking back our schools. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's so true. I am an accidental activist. You know, I was uh, actually had quit my job to stay home with my kids. Um, And so I was a stay-at-home mom and I had gone to a a school board meeting offered by my trustee here in Clark County, which in Clark County, where we are, it's the fifth largest school district in the country, just for some context. But I had been going to some of those meetings, but this one was a little bit different. Uh, it It was an invite only meeting and it was going to be talking about sex education which at the time, um, my oldest was in third grade. He's now going into 10th grade. So this is, a, um, you know, seven, eight years ago. Um, I had no real context for, you know, anything that was happening in regards to sex education, but I was curious. So I did go to that meeting and um, I realized very quickly that I was the only parent at that meeting. That was kind of my first red flag. And so who um, else, who else, who were the non-parents at the meeting? Uh, there was a lot of district officials. There was um, an attorney from the ACLU. Um, there was several therapists. Um, there was a transgender uh, therapist there. And um, that was my first interaction with that person. Um, and uh, a few special ed teachers and some other school counselors. Okay. So, um, yeah, so just it was just a lot of, um, you know, sort of, I mean, frankly, just not parents. You know, I, I thought that was so super interesting. And looking back, did, did looking back at that makeup and the invite only sex ed meeting, like alarm bells would be going off. But when you're not yeah. familiar with this, you you know you don't know what's normal. You have nothing to compare it to, right? And this was before anyone really was having these conversations. So, um, and, you know, just invite only didn't seem so concerning at the time until I got there. And you know, one of the things we always hear in all public education, but especially here in Clark County, is that we're so underfunded. And, um, we, they had flown in a guy from New York from an organization called Secus as a consultant to talk about the gaps that we had in our sex education in Clark County. And I was like, gosh, I wonder how much this cost for, you know, this consultant to come in. And I hadn't heard of that organization and, and they passed out a guide that was called the comprehensive sexuality education or comprehensive sexuality education K through 12 was the manual. Yep. Oh, you have it. There it is. Yeah. So, and, and they're very tricky, right? They call them national. It's a, like a national um, U.S. sort of kind of like label, but it's not, it's, um, it's a private organization that's um, 
you know, it's not, has nothing to do with the government. It just sounds very official, but it's not, but I hadn't heard of it before. And I, I do have a background in psychology. My, that's my, my undergraduate degree is in psychology. And so I did recognize some of the people that were on the task force from like the, I'm, I'm going to say university of Illinois. I'm, I could be getting that wrong. Cause I'm have mom, mommy brain, but, um, Kinsey Institute and Kinsey research was something that I was, um, familiar with. And so, uh, and already knew that had some concerning history, and, and when I saw that, uh, the people that were writing this guide were on that task force to write this guide. And then um, also folks from Planned Parenthood and some other organizations that just definitely had, I mean, it was just red flag after red flag, right? So when I, I actually approached my trustee, because I had a relationship with my trustee, which is one of the things we teach parents to do, is to know who your trustee is and, and have conversations with them and make sure you're on their radar. Um, when I approached her after that meeting, I realized very quickly that she had, did not want to have that conversation with me. And I got a lot of pushback and told me to call, you know, um, some other people. And anyway, I, I got a hold of some other folks and they were like, well, you need to call curriculum and development at the school district. And they didn't know anything about it. And that was when it was kind of like, okay, the passing of the buck, right? Exactly. You guys know, I mean, there's no accountability and no one wants to take responsibility and, even some of the other trustees weren't aware that this person had been flown in. And so I began to just ask more questions and say, why can't more parents hear this presentation? Because it was invite only. And so um, anyway, we, we really just gathered a bunch of parents together and raised a huge stink and said, more parents need to be able to come to these meetings and needs to not be invite only. And was it a surprise to other, when you expose what would happen at this meeting, was it a shock to other parents as well? Yeah. I mean, not only was it a shock, I'm sure you guys have experienced this too, but there was a lot of pushback. Like they're not going to teach that stuff. You know I mean? Like you're just fear mongering, you're over-exaggerating. Right. And, and it sometimes feels like, you know, they're saying that you're the one causing the problem versus the problem that you're trying to help them understand and address. Um, How many parents are you talking about that you were able to gather? And is this all at just one school or was this a, a, a board that oversees several schools? So this is district wide. And um, this was just my trustee that happened to be doing. So we have, you know, seven trustees. It was just one trustee that happened to be doing this and running these meetings, but we did, but it was for the whole district. And and the conversations I was having was from the district. And so we were able to open up the meetings to be, um, you know, public for the parents. We had hundreds of parents. I actually don't know the number, but they held, I think, yeah, two or three more meetings and we packed them out. Right. Um, at like high school theaters and whatnot. And then ultimately at the school board meeting, the first school board meeting of the next school year, we flooded that meeting with probably two or 300 parents, which in our school district, I mean, it's a pretty small room. That's a lot of people. And it just was really, the media was there and, you know, it was one parent after another, just testifying about, and they would bring the guide up with them because we'd given them access to print that out. And just we really just empowered parents, which is really the mission of our organization. We realized like, if we just give the parents the information, you know, they are going to know what's best for their child, according to their beliefs and their worldview, and they're going to be able to make those decisions for their children. So just empowering them with the information was so, was so important. And they did come and we just said, you know, testify at these meetings and they ultimately pulled that guide and issued an apology for bringing them in and, and for, you know, everything that kind of had happened from that point forward. And that's interesting because um, I live in Illinois and Illinois is about to adopt its new sex ed standards and they are pointing to, you guessed it, the national sex education standards for, mm-hmm. at, for school districts to take their guidance from. 
and um, that it has CECUS in there. It also has, I don't know if you're familiar with Advocates for Youth. Yes, very. that's another one that people should have on their radar. Um, and we can talk a little bit more about these organizations and maybe some of the ones that people ought to know, um, know about and look up because there are there are so many. Um, if you read if you read inside the uh, standards, I mean, there's dozens of people that are have been involved with this. And you're right, it looks very official. Um, but it's definitely something that is, um, that's great that you were able to kind of get that apology and stop it. But I think that that's not the case many other places. Yeah. Well, and to your point, and I'm sorry to interrupt, but, but Advocates for Youth has um, developed sex ed curriculum that is being used now in our district, even though we've stopped the standards from changing here um, for so many years. Ultimately, they were changed um, in 2020 um, on a Zoom meeting that we were not aware of by our Nevada Department of Education. And they really changed that outside the purview of the public eye. And so now they're going forward and mat matching that curriculum with those new standards. So we've stopped it for so long and we've informed so many parents, but it's still gotten through because of just these underhanded tactics being used by these unelected people in the higher up parts of education. Do we know who's funding these organizations? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a lot, it's different groups. It's, it's sort of like the ones you would expect though. I mean, it's a lot of like Soros kind of funded um, human rights Marcus. campaign, Planned Parenthood, all of those same kind of organizations. And just so people have a sense of the types of thing that Advocates for Youth advocates for, if you visit their website, they feature key areas of advocacy, advocacy such as divesting in police and investing in sex ed. Um, and teaching that sexual risk avoidance, i.e. abstinence, is not sex education. Um, free the pill, that's a campaign to make birth control available everywhere without restriction. There's the hashtag abortion out loud. Um, and there's definitely the sense that these are, you know, they say they're advocating for youth. All of the youth are the main players and the adults are just there to help. So it's upside down. And it is quite frankly, a lot of material that I think a lot of parents would take issue with, or at least want to be in the know of, and, um, you know, and when they are trying to shut parents out, that should definitely be of concern. So is that when you started Power to Parent? Was that the genesis of the organization? Yeah. I mean, that was just the, the kind of catalyst for us recognizing that parents really needed to be empowered. And then, I mean, you know, kind of just doing the research into where sex education came from, why it started, you know, in public schools and, and the origin of all of those things you know, it took us down that rabbit hole and took me particularly down the rabbit hole of just this eye-opening, like there's been 20, 30, 40, 50 years of um, just advocacy and organization around pushing comprehensive sexuality uh, education into schools and, and grooming kids. And now fast forward eight years, we, we all know this now we're hearing it everywhere. It's been, it's been outed. Right. But, um, but at the time I just couldn't believe what I was reading that, that people would want to put this type of information in front of, you know, kindergartners and first graders. And it just was really shocking. So that was the, and, and then just to see how they had really circumvented parents at so many turns to obviously stop them from really knowing what they're teaching your kids. And uh, if you can go outside the purview of parents, outside the purview of health, um, where you have to send a permission slip, all these different things, um, then the parents, you know, can be blissfully unaware a lot of times of what is actually being taught and pushed in front of their kids. So that was the recognition as a group that we were like, we need an organization that protects parents' rights and allows and helps train parents to advocate for their kids. And did you have a, had you done any organizing before? Had you been involved in advocacy either in this, maybe not in this area, but in any sort of areas, or was this all new to you? 
It was, I mean, it was really all new to me. I mean, I, I would have to say I've been an involved person, you know, as far as like school and my job and things like that. I feel like I have a lot of like justice driven sort of things that I've done in my life, but, um, but I've never started an organization. I had never started a nonprofit um, and, and never done anything really like this at all. And in, it's just, we've just really built it from the ground up. So what are the key areas that you focus on? And um, did you have people from that initial group of two to 300 that came alongside you? Or was this the Aaron Phillips show? Or how did yeah. how did you go about, I guess, recruiting people and mobilizing in that way? Yeah, no, absolutely. The people who were kind of my first few phone calls, you know, were people that came alongside me and got me connected with the right people. I mean, I wasn't like, like I said, I was a stay at home mom. I wasn't connected at the time at all. Really wasn't really involved in anything like that. So, um, you know, I, I ended up getting connected with people who were, and yeah, a lot of those parents did stick around and, and really started to help kind of form the very first real advocacy organization with me. And, um, you know, I, I did a lot of the media and, and interviews and things like that at the time, but I actually wasn't even the president of the organization. You know, we actually asked someone else to be the president when we very first formed because she had uh, experience doing activism. And so anyway, so I did that for a couple of years and then, um, moved into that position as the president and took that on. Um, but yeah, I have a huge amount of support from really, you know, a whole team. Um, but we've just built this organization where, yeah, parents are, they care about this, but they don't know how to engage sometimes. Um, and I think this is a down, this is a downfall, right. For parents, like we are just trying to live our lives and raise our kids and go to soccer and baseball and, you know, get them out of this phase of childhood they're in, you know, and become adults. And it's like, now we have a whole nother job that we have to do, you know, in regards to knowing what's being taught and knowing what's going on. And it's really overwhelming. And so I, I really, really realized that we needed to have like a, I mean, it's a full-time job, but a full-time, you know, team of people who are putting the information out, reading, knowing what's going on at these meetings, and then just being able to share it really concisely with parents so they can take it and have an action step and, you know, continue to build that grassroots part of, you know, just that advocacy side. Definitely can um, understand. I do this on a much, I think, smaller scale in my community, and it is definitely a labor of love. And it is, um, you know, but it's something that you kind of feel once you've seen what's out there, you can't unsee it. And so you can't just sit back um, and you, you know, you want to be proactive. And I think that really comes through with the programs, the programming that you've come up with. And I wonder if you could share with us a little bit of what kind of your main prongs are and if there's any case study or some, an example that might help people get a sense of, you know, how you guys go from, from theory to action um, in terms of, of empowering parents. Yeah. I mean, I think it just takes like a lot of grit, honestly. <laughs> I'm just being like, you can't give up even if you lose a lot of the battles. I mean, that's just the hardest part. And you guys know this, it's like, you know, you get like a small win here and then you get a lot of losses. And it's like, unless you understand the overarching purpose of what you're doing, um, and, and understand what you're doing is, is right and good. Then it's like, okay, it's easy to just to back off and bury your head in the sand. But, um, you know, for, for parents, I think that, um, we can, again, it feels like you're drinking from a fire hose. Sometimes when you see this really terrible stuff that, you know, we know is being taught to our kids and how do you enter into those conversations with your kids? And how do you stop that stuff from getting in front of them? And, and like, there's just, it's really overwhelming. And I think um, we have a tendency as, as parents sometimes to just like, okay, I can't do it all. So I'm not gonna do anything, you know? And I think I would just caution 
parents and, and people who are wanting to start organizations that, that you, you have to just, you know, how do you eat an elephant that, that concept, like one bite at a time, um, you have to really look at it in small chunks. Like what can I do today? Um, what's one small thing that I can change, you know, whether it's pulling your kids out of the school they're in, which is maybe a bigger decision for some families or, you know, um, joining an organization like mine, where you just get my emails and you, you know, make a phone call to your legislator when you need to, you know, it could be as little or as much as you have the ability to do. I think the biggest thing is just don't do nothing. <laughs> is it tough to get, to keep parents engaged and motivated when you're not winning every battle on these issues? It is, it is you know, it is because I, I mean, I get it. You know, I'm like, I want to quit sometimes too. Cause they're like, Oh, you lost this, this policy that we've been fighting for two years. It's here. It, all of a sudden it's in the schools and, you know, but I think it's also, you have to have someone in the position like, like I am, where you can have some more vision, you know, and try to just look up above the clouds a little bit and see where you're going and continue keeping that in frame. Because, you know, again, it's like we are losing some of these battles, but some of the things that I, we, I look back on some of the hardest battles that we've fought and then lost have come back later as being super important. I mean, look where we, we are at right now in 2022, um, you know, we fought this battle here with the gender diverse policy, which was really opening bathrooms and locker rooms, probably changing areas for kids who felt like they were identified as the opposite gender. And we were really fighting for neutral, you know, facilities, neutral changing, all these things. And, and, you know, it was a really ugly time and nobody really wanted to touch it, you know, back then. So, and this is good. This goes back out. 2017. Wow. That was definitely on yeah. the cutting edge. Wow. Okay. Yeah. No, we were like, you know, like the, the lepers, you know what I mean? Like we were just like, everyone knew that it was wrong, but they didn't want to have to talk about it. Is your school district unique in that these issues came up so much earlier than others or were, was pretty much every school district in the country doing these things five, six years ago? And did it have something to being the fifth largest school district in the country? I would say we're more progressive in that way than other places in the country. But one thing I, I recognized that I thought was so shocking was um, like, for example, this idea of opt-in for sex education was something they were fighting really hard to remove. And we have that as a law in Nevada. Um, you have to have a, a permission slip signed by a parent to take sex ed. Well, we didn't realize until we started really looking into it, but other states, a lot more conservative states had actually lost that battle, not even knowing, you know, they, they slipped it into a law, really innocuous kind of language in a bill in these other states, because it's been a part of their strategy that they've been working out for, like I said, 20, 30 years. Uh, and so they actually had already lost the right to signing permission slip for, for, before, you know, um, being taught sex education. But so it's, it's really interesting because that's part of the strategy that I've seen is that it's almost like they're going after the more conservative areas in a way too. Um, so a lot of people don't realize that the things, the rights that they've lost until they, like, you know, until they're already gone. They're playing a long game. And I think that's something, and kind of talking to what uh, you mentioned earlier about people not getting discouraged. I think we need to have a mentality and a mindset that this is a long game. We are not going to solve every problem overnight and that it will, um, you know, it's going to take a long concerted effort uh, and it can be done. But um, it's definitely, definitely a mindset that is uh, new to many uh, that have just joined the battle. Um, yeah. How have, how were you received by your community members, especially on in those early days? You, you hinted at it that 
maybe. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I think it was a mix, right? It was a mix of like, um, what do you mean they're trying to teach kindergartners how to masturbate? Right. I mean, it was just like, that can't be true, you know? And I think maybe this is, maybe you're just taking this a, a step too far. That's not what they're trying to do. And I think there's, you know, this has changed a lot, but there was a lot of trust that was, you know, being put into teachers and administrators and, you know, especially, you know, if you, if you're involved in your own kids schools and you know, those teachers, you know, it's like, you want to believe that they have the best intentions for your kids. And so, uh, you know, so I think that was the hard part in the beginning was just really getting people to see that this is really what is happening. We're not making this up, you know, and then, and then you had that group of parents who were like really fired up, like, you know, like we were. So, you know, um, did you lose any friends? Did you, did like anything irreparable or or more kind of on the margins? You know, I, I, I would say it's probably more on the margins. I mean, it's not that I've never been outspoken about issues before. So it's, I mean, but I think, you know, with social media and the way that things really blew up, I feel like I definitely, um, lost some friends and, um, there was a lot of those sort of nuanced conversations about, oh, well, if you guys don't want to teach sex ed, then who's, you know, how are we, we stopping these kids from getting pregnant? And, you know, like we're, no one's saying we shouldn't be having sex ed. So, so there was those conversations that kind of became difficult. Yeah. There was some tense sort of relational things that we dealt with, but at the end of the day, I mean, I, I guess, you know, going back to what we said before, like as a mom, I have one job, you know what I mean? And, um, if anything kind of is going to interfere with that job or any relationships going to interfere with that job, then I really don't, I guess I would say it's just, it's unnecessary. Right. So I don't feel like that was my issue. I think the issue was getting the other activist organizations coming after us and then coming after me personally, attacking me personally. And that was a first for me. You know, I hadn't been in a position where, you know, people on Twitter were calling me a bigot and, you know, following me to my car and these other things. So that was a really eye-opening part of this activism that I hadn't anticipated, hadn't experienced before. I, um, I have been, I have received that as well. And it, it hurts, you know, especially at first, but then you, you know, you get over it and it, it hurts less and less. And then quite frankly, you just kind of understand that it says so much more about the people who are uh, hurling that than it does about you. So it definitely, um, over time and you end up stronger. Um, I wanted to ask about something on uh, your website. It was a teacher union survey. And I wanted to just talk about teachers unions and the roles that you've seen them play in this whole dynamic, uh, probably broadly in, in a lot in several problems in schools, in addition to kind of the sex ed ones that we've talked about. Um, so could you speak to that and kind of the status of that project? And I, I wasn't sure if you had taken it and published results, but I think that they're clearly a player and it would be um, interesting to hear from your perspective, um, what your, what your experience has been. Yeah. So I think like many of us in 2020, we, you know, we really started to see the outsized influence that teachers unions had on whether or not our kids were going back to school. And we had been very involved with uh, working with the district on trying to get kids back in classrooms that fall of 2020 after having got online the previous spring. And we had a plan in place and we were, you know, it wasn't ideal, but it was better than nothing. It was like, you know, we were, okay, it's a step. We'll get our kids in the classrooms. And then about a week before the um, opening of schools, there was a school board meeting and our trustees voted to, um, to not move that plan forward. And we were just kind of flabbergasted if that could still happen to us at this venture, <laughs> you know, for all the things we've been through, but we were because we thought who wouldn't want the kids back in the classrooms at this point. And so we really 
started to try to research the origins of that decision. And it became very clear that the teachers union was very much a part of why that was, um, it was decided that way. And again, we have a huge school district. And so, I mean, there's so much bureaucracy and, and that's a whole nother conversation, but um, but it wasn't, it was, it was very clear they were protecting adults instead of protecting kids. And it was about the interest of the adults and, and, and really not the majority of adults, because you guys know, most people know that many of the teachers really wanted to be back in classrooms as well. So it's a small minority of teachers, but the teachers unions themselves, because they, you know, they have all this money and they have all this influence, they end up speaking for the majority of teachers, even if the teachers don't agree with what right. they're advocating for. <laughs> but the, it's the difference between the leadership and that small but vocal group versus versus the masses. And so yeah. um, so it was really kind of stemming from from COVID, not necessarily something that you had seen seen before. Okay. Yeah. Right. I mean, you know, we had had interactions and and some, you know, had some idea about the teachers union, you know, before that, but um, but but it wasn't, we did not realize how much power they had until 2020. We just we thought, how could this, how could this be, you know, there's, I think there's 18,000 um, in, in our union here for Clark County. And I'm like, that's not that many teachers. I was like, we have way more parents than that. So mm-hmm. we were like, okay, first of all, how do we get these teachers to leave the union who don't feel like they're being represented? And then how do we have a, a parent union uh, that, that has a, you know, just a megaphone on the parent voice because there are, you know, what our interests and what's important for our kids is way more important. And listen, we love and respect our teachers. My mom teaches kindergarten at here in Clark County. I mean, she's an incredible teacher at a title one school. Like we love our teachers, but if, if you are not, if you're going into a situation, you're not protecting the kids and you're, you're putting, you know, the kids in front of the adults <laughs> to shield them, you know, I mean, I just couldn't believe what was happening that we don't do that in any other arena. So um, yeah, so we put that survey out because one of the, the things we realized was that there are a lot of teachers that don't realize they don't have to be in the union. They've been, um, they've, they've been bullied really into feeling afraid that if they're not in that union, that they can lose their jobs and that they don't have protection and this and that. And I mean, for better or for worse, it's really hard to get fired in this district. I don't know if it's like that everywhere, but, um, I think it should be certainly is in New York. Oh, is it? Is it's it? A, oh, you can't fire a teacher. Oh. It's Same. crazy to me. In Chicago, yeah. it's very difficult. And, and that's non-union, union or non-union, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it doesn't really matter if you're in the union or not. You can still, you know, it's still hard to lose your job. So, but there's also these teachers associations. There's like there's a couple of faith-based ones and non-faith-based ones that really, if you just need the insurance that they offer sort of like the protection that you can go and you can purchase that protection and that insurance from these other organizations and, and so we were just really um, involved on that side with trying to inform teachers, like you can save some money, you know, it's like a thousand dollars a year they're taking from these pe- teachers paychecks and, uh, in, and you can have the same benefits without, you know, having them spend all your money on, you know, we know now 90, 98, 99% democratic candidates and, um, and other issues like not letting our kids go back to school. So have you had a lot of teachers leave the unions? I mean, we is have. that, yeah. Here in, in Clark County, we have, um, I mean, we've lost a lot of teachers in general here in Clark County. It's just been, um, you know, COVID was really, really so tough on, on most teachers, but, you know, I mean, again, there was a lot of teachers who wanted to be in person and, um, you know, when they finally got in person, we had almost a full year, um, online. And because we're, we're a majority minority district, 
And we only have like 26 out of 300 and something schools that are not title one in Clark County. And so those kids are the ones who have lack, you know, lack of access, lack of internet access. They have less resources, less choices. And so when we came back in person here, it, I mean, this is true everywhere, but it was a disaster. I mean, it's been a really, really yeah. tough year. So teachers are done. So we've lost, we have like 1700 open uh, licensed teacher positions right now that they can't fill. But wow. as far as the union goes, I know their membership has dwindled. I think it's hard to get an accurate count from them. I don't think they're hundred percent transparent about how many members they actually do have, but I know for sure, personal stories, people that have reached out to us, uh, people are leaving the union. Yes. Well, it's, so it sounds like you had some success and obviously the circumstances of COVID were contributing to that, but that's encouraging. I mean, I think yeah. that is, those are the types of stories and wins that can help encourage people in other communities um, to do the same. Um, what about the education freedom accounts, which sounds like an education savings account. Is that, is that yeah. accurate? Yes. Um, which is kind of the, that's kind of the, um, you know, the, the, the premium when it comes to school choice, I think a lot of people see that really being the ticket that could drive the most value and the most freedom. Um, what has your, what's the process been? And uh, have you had similar successes with advancing that in Nevada? So in 2015, when it was like not cool, we actually passed a law in Nevada that was to establish education savings accounts. Um, very quickly, the Democrat Party here sued and um, it went to the Nevada Supreme Court and it was found that the program was constitutional, but the funding that they had used was not. So that stayed on in Nevada revised statute, it stayed in our code for, you know, however long, but we didn't have a majority um, in, in the legislature to actually change that funding mechanism. So they were never funded. Um, and then in 2019, the Democrats actually removed it completely from the NRS. And so uh, we had to start completely from scratch. And so what, what we recognized was sort of timing wise, you know, with what's happened in 2020, what's happened with, you know, so many teachers, everyone's really disillusioned. And then nationwide, you know, with all of the wave of school choice that's happened, you really recognize that this was a, a wonderful opportunity to be able to kind of capitalize on the, um, that people want something different. They want the freedom to choose their child's education across party lines. Um, it's the highest issue in, in the polling that we've done is the highest issue among independents is school choice. And they want, they want it. And we have more independent voters in actually in Nevada than we do Republican or Democrat voters, which is interesting. It's a unique dynamic here. So we filed the education freedom for Nevada PAC. We wrote two ballot initiatives. One is a constitutional. So it would change the Nevada constitution. It would, it would essentially codify that in law in the constitution. And the other one is a statutory. And we did that for just some strategic reasons, but they do the same thing, which is they establish an account. And this is where you've heard is happening, just happened in Arizona, a huge school choice yep. initiative, very similar to this that allows the public funding. We, we put 90% of the base per pupil funding, which comes out to about $7,000, same as Arizona. And, and the families can decide where that money goes and how to educate their child the way that they see fit. And we know, you know, you get all this blowback because it's become so polarized, but again, across party lines, Republicans, Democrats, independents want school choice, 70% you know, of Democrats want school choice. And so 
if you go on the street and ask the average person, do you want to decide where your child goes to school? Do you know if this school isn't working for you? Do you want the option to take your child somewhere else? And the answer is going to be yes. So we know that the, the opposition to this is driven. It's very politically motivated and it's driven by teachers unions because they're the ones who are giving money to Democrats to win these elections. Um, in order to protect this status quo, we're, we're protecting this establishment um, and, and this funding because that's where they get their money from. And, and it's very cyclical. So I think what we're seeing is just someone has blown a hole in the side of that ship and we're able to finally get in there and start to really dismantle that whole, you know, system that we're all very used to. We all grew up in that system. I, you know, and I went to public school. And so anyway, I think it's just, it's going to take a little bit more time, but for us, we have, um, we just had a Supreme court, um, Nevada Supreme court hearing, and we're supposed to have our ruling actually come out tomorrow or Thursday, um, to, you know, decide whether or not that they will allow us to go forward and finish getting the signatures that we need for this initiative. Okay. So that's the status. And then as far as the funding mechanism, you said that that was a problem before. I assume that that's been fixed in whatever is being proposed um, going forward. Yeah. And the way that we wrote it was that, that we didn't really, um, we didn't add a funding mechanism. We're leaving that up to the legislature to decide. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that way, you know, whoever is elected in, you know, the representatives that they will figure out how to fund it. And that allows us to just talk about, you know, what is this going to look like for families moving forward? So you're, you're obviously focused mostly on Nevada. Your organization though, I think is in, you said six states. Yes. Same issues in those six states, different issues. I mean, do you work closely with other states? Yeah, or each state kind of independent or each chapter independent. I I think there's very similar issues in every state. You know, we work really closely with every state. We we have meetings with our state directors weekly, Um, but the laws are so unique and and the makeup of the legislatures are so unique and the, you know, kind of just the way that the parents are kind of spread out or not spread out. So, so every state is so unique, but yeah, I mean, the issues are very similar. Everyone wants the freedom to direct their child's education. Every parent wants the ability to make all of those medical and and educational decisions for their kids. So those are the issues that we are dealing with uh, on a regular basis in every single state. Got it. So your website is Mm -hmm. poweredtoparent.org and that's how people can reach out. Any, any last advice for parents who, you know, want to get involved, should get involved or that you want to try to help get involved? Yeah. I mean, we are, you know, trying to expand. I mean, we've kind of slowed our role a little bit because we have, we want to get good people in every state that are running these unions, but we want to have a power to parent union in every state. Um, If you don't have a union in your state, you can join the national union on our website and just stay informed on what we're doing. Follow us on social media at power to parent, and then also reach out if you have questions or issues. And and, and that's at, you know, info at power to parent.org is the website to just reach out and ask questions. And I know if we need to get involved and help out. Perfect. Well, Aaron, thank you so much for joining us on Take Back Our Schools. And thank you for all the work that you are doing on this front to, uh, to help fix our education system. Thank you guys. Very similar experiences, slightly different content and curriculum issues, yeah. but, um, but you know, it's kind of in a weird way in, encouraging that it really is the same playbook. Um, we actually had a similar 
meeting. It wasn't a board meeting. It was actually open to parents, but very few parents came. And this was actually in December of, I think, 2016. And it was about um, transgender students and kind of laying the groundwork for having transgender or like uh, bathrooms. Right. And they had the, um, you know, of course, the quote unquote expert from Lurie's Children's Hospital who came and told us that all the science is settled. This is how it is. Um, using materials that were very, you know, similar to what she was talking about. And um, anybody that questioned it was essentially shut down yeah. and told that they were, you know, wrong and that the research is. And so it was really, um, you know, that's, it's impressive that she was able to gather so many people um, to help in that battle. I thought that was, uh, that was a great story and that she's obviously, you know, taken that energy and has transformed it into something that is really making a difference in Nevada and really across the nation. With her chapters. Yeah. I mean, on the one hand, it, you know, it, I mean, obviously this parents movement is growing, which is mm-hmm. a good thing. And obviously that there are so many different issues to get parents motivated to do something is on one hand, a good thing. On the other hand is really scary that there are so many different issues that we need to be fighting. And I think at the root, they're all, you know, related. And a lot of it's about separating the kids from the parents and, and, ha- you know, and, and, you know, the school systems taking over that role you know, from right, the lack of transparency, lack of um, transparency. Absolutely. For sure. And, you know, a lot of these organizations, I thought she made a great point that they are presented as either experts or official or something to make parents think, you know, parents well, that word have a ex- lot of time. That word expert, I mean, in, in broadly now in society is used just to shut down conversation. Yeah. Right. Is it an expert? Mm-hmm. Therefore, you're not allowed to have an Question. opinion on these things. Right, right. You don't, you're not the professional, um, you know, and so it was definitely, um, I think it's, it's good for parents to know some of these names. I know um, some of these organizations that I've come across and that actually people should really look up the national sex education standards. You can do an online search for it. Um, It is a pretty thick document. Uh, but worth taking a look at because it does outline uh, what a lot of schools are looking at adopting, um, or at least a framework. And so it's presented as official. So SECUS uh, is one group that she mentioned that was involved in um, in putting these together. Advocates for youth that youth that we talked about uh, is it Glisten or Gilson G L S E N, um, which is an advocacy group for uh, gay lesbian. Uh, by students, Southern Poverty Law Center. So enough said there. Um, So it's just, there are these organizations and they come together and then they put things together where, um, you know, like the guiding principles in this uh, definitely assume that gender theory is real and is settled. Um, They talk about gender identity, intersectionality, social justice all the way through. And, you know, it begins with quoting a study from Advocates for Youth. So to the point of, you know, pointing to experts, pointing to studies, and you really do need to dig beneath the surface to understand what's in these standards. Um, And some of the things that they um, recommend, you know, by second grade that children, second grade, so this is what eight-year-olds can define consent and can define gender identity and gender roles and gender stereotypes. And by grades three through five, um, you know, talk about masturbation and the role of hormone blockers. And I think some things that would be pretty eye-opening to parents, and it almost seems like they are having some of the gender discussions really early on so that it's more how it manifests itself in your life or some of the conversations that they have uh, when kids are older. And it's all out there, it's all online. So um, I would 
definitely um, suggest that parents take a look and then also find yeah. out, is it being adopted at your school and, and what are your avenues for, for action? And the assumption is it probably is being adopted at your school. I, so, I know it is in the private school world and it's, it is in the like private school. I wasn't sure. And we talked mostly unless, about unless you go public. pretty far religious, obviously, but, but certainly mm -hmm. secular and even a little mm -hmm. bit religious, I think it is. Mm -hmm. It sounds like it's in most school districts across the country. Mm -hmm. I don't know, but it sounds like it is. I, I don't know. I mean, there is, if you look at all of the organizations that are involved, um, there is probably a lot of money behind it. And sure. I think, you know, quite frankly, if the teaching establishment is behind it, I haven't looked on the teachers union sites to know if they have officially adopted these standards. Um, my guess is they have because they have adopted on their platforms. If you go to the National um, Education Association website, you can find their, their platforms that are right. very political and very one-sided. And um, I, most I of the language that's in here. Now. No, no, they're no, not. They're not. Okay. Mm -mm. No, it's very, it's actually very obvious um, out very, very loud. And most of what they talk about in these uh, national sex education standards, uh, you'll see a lot of the same language um, on that site. And I'm sure on American Federation of Teachers as well. So um, those aren't the only organizations, the unions that, that push this, but if they are pushing it, you know, it gets into your classroom because right. the teachers are a part of that. So um, it stuff. is, it is, and, but it's important for people to know, um, you know, go to your school and find out, for example, in Illinois, which is a blue state, they pass legislation that basically said that they'll adopt these standards. They haven't articulated that exactly, but right now as it stands, it looks like this is what they would, they would recommend using the national sex edu education standards for Illinois schools. But they, in the legislation say, each school district can decide how they're going to teach. And they also give families the right to opt out. So to opt out, but the default out. is you're in versus default like is what Aaron was so saying, where they were different. fighting for it to be an, by default, you mm -hmm. don't have your kid in this and then you have to opt in. So the question Correct. is then, do parents, you know, is it clear enough that parents know they can opt out? They, and they need to ask. They, they, yeah. It will vary by, probably by state. And then, um, you know, just ask at your school. Um, and, and if it's a public school, private school world. So, you That's, know, I yeah. know. And then, and then, and then you know, and then the question is, are the kids ostracized if they do that? Or is there peer pressure for the, from the kids not to opt out? I'm sure That's there is. That's a separate issue. Exactly. And you have to decide, you know, in my opinion, if you're your child's friend or if you're their parent, um, you know, well that's my view, but <laughs> well, <so. said. laughs> all right. Well, uh, Aaron Phillips clearly has demonstrated passion and leadership in her advocacy. Um, and I think most importantly, we talked about today is action um, that she saw that initial issue and then has created this organization uh, that is in multiple states and, and in having an impact. Um, I also, you know, some people let others fight their battles for them. And Erin is the opposite, um, just with her mobilization efforts and, and really empowers parents to make these battles their own and, um, and go out and, and fight them. So, all right, with that, uh, thank you for listening. And if you enjoy the show, please do share it. Give us a positive rating on wherever you access your podcasts. And also, please be sure to join us again. So on behalf of my co-host, Andrew Gutman, this is Beth Feely, and we will be back soon with another episode of Take Back Our Schools. Ricochet. Join the conversation.